Dave, welcome to uh, Nations Media. We're so thrilled to have you here. This is our first podcast here in our little makeshift studio. So welcome. Thank you. And can I pray? I'd love it if you prayed. Lord Jesus, this place is excellent. And I ask for your spirit here all the time to displace all others and guide us and bless nations with all the money, finances, relationships, um, business ideas, physical health and strength, um, and protection, and that your word would go out through them all over and bless this podcast too, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I just pray you get a lot of money, man, to pay for this. <laughs> it looks, it's world class. Thanks, man. Yeah, it's neat. Well, hey, uh, Dave, you're, you've become a good friend, and I, I've always admired just your approach to life and Christianity and faith. And uh, I was uh, made aware of you uh, by articles in the New York Times, Newsweek. I mean, a lot of people have covered you, and a lot of people have tried to fit you into certain boxes. But how would you describe yourself? I would describe myself as someone who is blessed by God beyond anything I've done to deserve that and grateful. I describe myself as someone who wants to be an ambassador for Jesus. I describe myself as someone who wants to be free of of things that entangle and enslave and also just free in general, just run amok. And as a grateful child of wonderful parents, my, my dad's 90. They've been on the mission field in Thailand for almost 60 years. And my mom and my dad and a brother to wonderful sisters, a husband to a, a wife I really don't deserve. And in fact, I, I'll just say one thing about her. Without Karen, I would do many more bad things and many fewer good things. And I had no idea when we got married that that would be one of the foundational blessings and then three kids, so I'm a father to them. And then we have the Free Burma Rangers, which is a relief organization. I'm the leader of that. And I like sport, every sport there ever is, even cricket. And that's how I describe myself. I like that. Seems like everyone wants you to be the machine gun preacher. Um, do you feel like the machine gun preacher? Not really. I feel like... I guess in the description, I would say I'm a cowboy and a soldier. Those are two things. I mean, physically, really a cowboy. I ride horses and my kids rodeo, and I love that life. I had horses my whole life. We have a bunch now in Burma and Thailand, even in Iraq and Syria, we have horses. So, and then a soldier, I was in the infantry and then Rangers and Special Forces in the U.S. Army. And that's never really left me. Like a friend of mine said, Dave, you know, all of us went through ranger school that were in the rangers and we all graduated, but you never did. You never got out of that school. You're still living in that school, man, walking around the rucksack on and you like it. What's wrong with you? You know, in the Battle of Mosul, we're going down the street and this Marine, really good friend of mine, helped save my life twice in the Battle of Mosul. He said, Dave, I was in Fallujah. I got shot four times back in 2004 and I hate this stuff. You like it. <laughs> it's like, man. So I think I'll always be a soldier of some kind or the other. I like that life, and it comes naturally. 
but I want to be one for Jesus and I want the weapons to be spiritual and love. Sometimes you have to do physical things in this world and sometimes people won't listen to talk or love or anything sometimes, but those are rare exceptions. So I'm not also much of a preacher, so I, I usually don't have a machine gun, so I'm not a qualified machine gun preacher. But I always just ask myself when I'm doing anything, can you be an ambassador of Jesus right now doing this? Is this really what he wants? And just ask him. I love that. Did you, you were raised in the mission field? Where, where did you grow up? Well, I was born in Texas, and then when I was nine months old, my parents went to Thailand, and I went with them. In and Chiang Mai? I, I grew up, no, in southern, south, south, southwestern Thailand, near, between Kanchanaburi, the bridge of River Kwai, and Bangkok. But So west of Bangkok. Out in those days, the jungle in the country, and rice fields, and very simple life. Like it, in the rainy season, it could take you eight hours driving to get to the, the biggest city. And sometimes you have to use a boat. So I grew up, you know, my dad taught me how to shoot when I was five, how to ride a horse when I was five, how to swim. You can learn earlier, but there was no ocean, so we had to go to the ocean to swim. And I grew up in a, I thought, a wonderful life. There was no school, so I eventually went to a boarding school in northern Thailand in Chiang Mai. Okay. And there, this, this Vietnam War is going. So we had the CIA based out of Thailand flying missions into Laos. And we had Special Forces guys from Laos and Vietnam, U.S., coming back and forth because Thailand was one of the major bases, a lot of air bases there as well. So I was in Boy Scouts. Boy Scouts then were like Baden-Powell's Boy Scouts. You know, Baden-Powell founded the Boy Scouts based on his experience in the Boer War in South Africa, where he wanted, they needed everybody they could get. They needed boys to go out there and be scouts. Like, look, where's the enemy? I didn't know that. Yeah, that's how it started. Wow. So it was, it was how do you have an auxiliary force of young men who aren't really going to go fight, because this could be 11 years old, but everybody's needed who can ride a horse and is tough and knows field craft to, to be eyes. And so, and then on top of that, you're giving us some, you, you need to tr some people you need to train. People who grew up on ranches, you don't need to train them. They already know it. But a lot of kids from the city, they needed training how to live in the woods and live. And then part of it was character development. God was at the center of the Boy Scouts in those days as well. And the scouts came over to Thailand. Well, my scout master, um, was my dad, who's a missionary. And so I had brutal times. So if I passed up to get a merit badge, I had to do it like five times to make sure there was no favoritism. <laughs> and my dad No had nepotism. Been, no, no, no. My dad had been an Eagle Scout. But one of our advisors um, ran the CIA operations out of northern Thailand. And he'd been a paratrooper in World War II. He's in, you ever see Band of Brothers? Yeah. He's in the scene at Nijmegen, when, and there's a Lieutenant Brewer gets shot through the throat. It's a very short scene. Right. He's shot through the throat, and he's laying on around on the ground, thrashing around, and he passes out. And the medic runs to him in, in, the, in the movie and goes, he's dead. Well, in real life, the medic said that. He's dead. What Brewer, what doesn't come out in the movie, Brewer said, nobody liked me because I was a bad, mean guy. And they were kind of glad that he was dead. And maybe that does come out a little bit. But anyways, Brewer wakes up by himself in a bunch of dead bodies. And the Germans are coming because this is a bridge too far. Yeah. The Allies are, are retreating. And he's there, dead, left for dead. And Dutch Boy Scouts come and save him. And he said, if I lived and, many, and died trying to, hide him because then the nazis were coming back and just finding all the, the right. allies who were wounded and hiding that's an iconic scene yeah so that guy he said if i live i'm gonna be i'm gonna give my whatever extra life to boy scouts so he's our boy scout advisor tough dude man 
So he would coordinate. We'd go on a 10-day hike, and these are like 20-something miles a day with all your gear over the mountains. And then maybe day five, you're out of food. You can't carry that much food. And, you know, I'm 11 years old. And then he'd fly his porters, these little Pilatus porters stole aircraft, fly them over us. We'd clear a little drop zone. These two, you know, walkie-talkies those days were this big. And you talk, you know, uh, vector in on 270-degree heading. And I'd sit out there, and then you'd give your hand and arm signals for five degrees, five degrees this way, hold steady, and then like this. And then you guide them in and then execute, execute, execute. So I'm 11 years old and then ca- calling in airdrops. It was cool. That was awesome, Boy Scouts. <laughs> I carried a rifle. I mean, we just did like the Boy Scouts were started to do. So I don't even know how we got on that conversation, but that's how I don't know either. But I I had horses, baby bear. We had two leopards. We had dogs, monkeys. We had every kind of wild animal from the jungle and eaters. And it was a blessed life. And so you were destined from the get go to basically be on course for what you're doing now. Um, Share a little bit about what you've been up to the last 12 months. What has Free Burman Rangers been doing? Where have you been? I know you've been in Iraq, Syria, anywhere else. Well, before I say that, because you said something about Destin or my background, I wanted to add, I think, the most pivotal point. When I was in boarding school, so you're up there. I'm not going to see my parents until Thanksgiving. I think it was Christmas. So three months. And I was seven years old then. And right away, I got dengue fever, which is a tropical disease. And I was really sick. I've had that as well. You had it. So I'm laying there by myself, uh, being sick. And mom. Bone bone break fever. Yeah, right. And mom's not around. Dad's not around. And I'm homesick. And I thought, well, mom and dad believe in God, but now they're not here. Wow. Is he real? And I said, Jesus, if you're real, please help me. And I said that prayer to a desperate little seven-year-old, very sick and homesick, alone in the, in the boarding school. Everybody else was at school. And I felt something happened in the room, and I felt something in my heart, and it was love. And later on, I thought, what would you expect? God is love. So if you feel God's presence, you're going to feel love. And I felt that. And that's what you need. That's what I'm missing. And I wasn't healed right away physically, but my heart was comforted. And I thought, oh, Jesus is real. So when I went back home at the, I think, winter break, when my dad in Thai, because he led Thai services, he's an evangelist, but also does a lot of churches, he asked for the, the who's going to come to give their life to the Lord. I was the first one that walked up and he didn't know he was, he was close his eyes praying and he looks up and he sees me like, wow. (laughs) So that was, I think that's the pivotal event in my life. And I've had to keep asking Jesus be my Lord. Hmm. Keep asking for forgiveness. Keep saying I, even though I'm playing with the bad things and selfish things, I don't want that. Forgive me. Help me walk your way. I want the best things. You know, after one particular fight in in um, Mosul where Lieutenant Hussein right next to me shot multiple times, shot six times, and Shasta was shot, and we fought for our lives. When it was over, I should have been dead because there were, at that particular time, there was Onisis around the corner, three out in the street. They advanced. They shot at us from seven yards. So that's mm. that's close. Advanced within two, within four and a half yards shooting at us and shot us up. And we, pray- I said, God help me. I thought I was dead. God help me. And I fought back and I lived. But I remember thinking the point of this little story is, God, don't let me waste. I don't need, I shouldn't be alive. By all rights, I should be dead. I don't know how I lived through that. So don't let me waste it. Let me take this life as a gift and give it back and and be useful. 
you've been more than useful. Um, you've seen uh, your ministry start in in Burma, and uh, and now has spread to conflict zones all over the place. Um, how did it start in in Burma? Well, in Burma, we were actually back in the United States. So I was in the army for ten years. Rangers. Rangers yeah. and, then, and then special forces, yeah. and which is two different groups. Then I got and I was getting out, and I met Karen, um, and she wouldn't date me, but she'd climb. So we climbed Mount Shuckson, and we climbed all over the Northwest. And then I got ready to go to Fuller Seminary, and at about the same time, a tribe in Burma called the Wa came out of Burma to Thailand asking for help, and I was invited, go help. So, to make a long story short, Karen said, "I'm in," and we were engaged at Carmel. Right on the right on the beach, wow. and then we got married down in Malibu, at Leo Korea Beach, right in the crashing waves. It was awesome, and then we went to to Burma. So we were invited. That's how it started. It wasn't my idea. We were invited by a tribe in Burma, and that was in nineteen um, ninety three. How did they hear about you? How did they know to invite you? Well, my parents have been there for a long time, okay. and when they trekked to Thailand to get help, they met the missionary community and people know my mom and dad. They went to the house. And there was a picture of me with a green beret, which means special forces, mm-hmm. and a uniform from when I was in the army. My parents had up and said, "Who's that?" They know what the green berets are because Vietnam War. Right. And they said, "Is he a follower of Jesus?" And my dad said, "Yeah, he's going to seminary." And they said, "Well, we are a warrior people because the Wa are. They were headhunters, one of the last headhunting groups in Southeast Asia, and they're still warriors. They're the biggest standing rebel army in Burma now, twenty thousand troops. Wow. And they grow narcotics. They produce opium, heroin, amphetamines, the whole thing. That's how they." Su- their army so we need help we need jesus said this one believer Mm. and we are warrior people send that guy so we went and that's how we first got involved in burma and then we saw the the fighting which is now a 70-year civil war and the death and the chaos and i thought well god if you want us to help i'll help one person and they'll be glad and i'll be glad and there was no other plan and then but step by step people began to join us Ilya. people like Ilya. And you met a lot of Ilya, Monkey, Toe, Silverhorn. You met most of these guys, Joseph. So you met Ilya day one. Yeah, he's the first ranger. If I have a story right, you climbed up over the mountain into Burma. Right. And you saw firsthand the atrocities. And (laughs) you yell something like, hey, you guys should love one another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they fired us up. (laughs) But they missed. And then Ilya steps out of the jungle with a hand grenade on and M16 and chewing betel nut and big red earring like a pirate, like. Johnny Depp, Pirates of the Caribbean kind yeah. of affect, and laughing, and he said, I'm, I am Ilya, I'm a medic. How can I help you? And I said, man, you're like a, a pirate, like a pirate angel. So we, he was the first ranger, and then from there, other people joined us. So then we grew into what became about 30, 40 relief teams operating in the fighting areas of Burma, giving medical and other humanitarian help and getting the news out. So help the people get the news out yeah. is our main Team goal. And anybody from any religion can join. You can be an atheist and join us. I want to follow Jesus. Most of our leaders end up following Jesus because they meet him and he meets their needs. But you don't have to be. We have Buddhist, Muslim, atheist, agnostic, spirit worship, Christian, all kinds of team members. But about the time we were maybe 40, 50 teams in 2014, we were asked to go to Sudan. And so we went to South Sudan first and then um, infiltrated with the Sudanese People Liberation Army North into Sudan proper, the Nuba Mountains, where the Sudanese Armed Forces 
um, under Bashir were attacking. They bombed us every single day we were there, bombing the Nubans. And so wow. we were there doing training relief teams and giving assistance. And then the end of 2014, we were in Burma again, and we were invited to go to help in the Middle East um, by Victor Marx. Hey, okay. come yep. over here. And then, and then nothing much happened at that point. We knew about ISIS by then, but we we're heavily engaged in Burma. And then in January, no, February 2015, we're in Shan State, Burma, northern Burma, and the Burma army had tried to block us and then catch us, but they couldn't. We went, walked around them 19 days, about 20 to 30 miles a day to get around them to get where we wanted to go, kind of like a big fish hook, you know, like a semicircle. And when we're at this point, 19 days into it, I get a message saying, please come and bring your relief teams to Kurdistan, northern Iraq, and help the people under attack by ISIS because you don't have a lot of safety rules. You'll do it. I said, and then be here in seven days. How is that possible? It took us 19 days to walk around the Burma army. So we prayed. thought, well, this would be easy. If God wants it done, that door will open. So we pray, and the next morning, three Burma army battalions that were in front of us, blocking us, thought that we were gone another way and got out from in front of us and went around. So we had to move about 80 miles or so in three days, but we could go straight now. So the bottom line is in seven days, I was in Iraq with Peter, my son, looking at the black flag of ISIS flying over Bashika, where you were, yep. where you guys all were, and thinking, wow, God, what do you want us to do here? And I just felt God say, give up your own way, give up the free Burma Ranger way, just come help these people. Maybe like how you go places. Okay, God, I'm going. And then the Kurdish military looked at Peter and said, you brought your son, your most precious thing. I give you my most precious thing, my country. So we got involved there and then up on Sinjar Mountain with the Yazidis. That's where I first met Jackie, actually, because she was with Victor. That's right. They were kind of running that trip for him. Jacqueline Isaac and a few of you, Dr. Nazar. Dr. Uh, Nazar is the head of public health. Yeah, and he's the, the one who kind of opened up the, the, door. the doors for the first shipment to get into Sinjar. Um, you guys broke yes. through and yep. got you were the first to get supplies into that. I don't think we were the first to get, but we were. Oh, with, really? We were with an early group. Okay. It was my first time, anyways. Okay. And yeah, he was instrumental in opening that door. And I, at, Victor asked to go, but they said it was too difficult. And then I went up to him and I said, "I want to go." He said he looked at me. He says, "That's your son." And I said, "Yeah." He goes, "You're serious. I'll find a way for you to go." But then Jackie came up to me later and said, "Can I go? Can I go?" I said. Yeah, you can go. She said, Victor's not going to let me go. Go talk to him. So I went and talked to Victor. He goes, yeah, of course you can go. So she came, and then he sent a photographer. So okay. there was a, one of Victor's guys, Jackie, Pete, and myself. And we all went with a – it turned out there was a bunch of parliamentarians, and Jackie had met some of them as well in the hotel. They were going the next day for the first – this is the first part. Mm. The first time parliament, anybody from the government had been on Sinjar. There's a little corridor open through ISIS. So we went together on that, and – then our work, we went right back after that trip, and we started doing relief work up on Sinjar. My wife and kids would be on the mountain. I'd be down in the city where the fighting was with some of my medics. And we did that, and then we were over in Bashika again, 2015, 2016. But in 2016, there was a big counteroffensive against ISIS where the Kurds pushed ISIS out of Kurdistan and defeated them in Sinjar and in Bashika, the whole area. And that led up to the Battle of Mosul, which started in October 2016, we prayed, what are we supposed to do? And we were invited right away to go help the Iraqi army. So our family, our teams, about 20, 25 of us, and our vehicles went and joined the 36th Armored Brigade of the 9th Armored Division and started in the whole battle of Mosul. Mm. 
But in between those events from 2015 to 2017, which is the battle, the main battle of Mosul, we've been invited to Syria. And so we'd been in and out of Syria. And you asked me long time ago in this interview, what did you do the last few months? Well, actually, we've been in Syria. So after the Battle of Mosul, we started going to Syria more. And that's where we most recently come back from. Okay. Um, last time I saw you, Mosul was, was, was freed of ISIS, but you still couldn't get in. Um, so how, if you can share, how do you get in and out of Syria? That's, it's next to impossible for, it's really tough for journalists. How do you do it? Well, prayer. Yeah. And originally going through, going to Syria, we'd go through Mosul and we'd get special permission to do that. And it was never easy. We always found a way. After the battle, during the battle of Mosul, very easy. You, you do whatever you want. Do whatever you're you want. You get shot, you can do here. it. Yeah, yeah exactly. You can go wherever you want. We need your help. After the battle of Mosul, things change. It's more difficult, but we always made it through. And we'd go through Mosul, through Tel Afar, through Sinjar, just going west the whole time. And, and then across somewhere near Kanasur, it's a little town on the border, into Syria. But by, the, by 2018, that had closed. But we still were able to go because the different generals and colonels who ran the security for the border of the Iraqi army were all people we'd fought with in Mosul. Okay. I mean, one time we were told, no, 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 no. And I get out of the car and this guy yells, David, Daoud. That's my name in Arabic. Daoud, Daoud. What are you doing here? And he, he comes up. He'd been shot in the foot right next to me. Ilya had treated him. He was the commander. In a fail, we were together in a failed attack against a, against a hospital controlled by ISIS. There was no more patients in it. It was just a strong point. It's the same area that a few days later we'd rescue that little girl and run behind the tank and rescue. It's the same area. Okay. But before we could get there, we got, we got beat up by ISIS pretty bad, lost a lot of people. Well, he was the leader of one of the groups that lost a lot of people, but we were the only medics for him. So we became very close. So when he got to the border, he said, where are you trying to go? Into Syria. I said very sheepishly. Because it's totally illegal. And he goes, Dave, you can do whatever you want to do. But first, <laughs> you have to have dinner with me. It's like, you know how God gives you these gifts? He didn't just open the door. We, had, we hadn't eaten either the whole the day. Huge feast. And then, he and then he says, you need fuel, don't you? And he fills our vehicles up with his gas. And then he escorts us to the border, tells everybody, these are my special guests, and off we go. So that went on 2018. But at the end of 2018, that was shut. And all new units came in. And there's a lot of conflict on that border. So then how are we going to cross when the last battle against the last battle against the physical stronghold of ISIS in Bagu, Syria was taking place in in um, January 2019? How are you going to get there? So we met through another friend, a guy named Brandon Wheeler, wonderful guy. We met um, some of the leaders of Kurdistan. And then I got to meet the who's now the president of Kurdistan, who was then the prime minister, Nurchaban Barzani. And maybe you've met you him. You met Barzani? Yeah. Wow. What a great guy. He told me a great story about his son. He said, his son to ask him, Daddy, you know what that is on this on this building? That's a cross, son. It's a little Christian village like Karakosh or something. Yeah. He goes, Dad, you know who that is? Who is it, my son? That's that's cross of Jesus. Hmm. He goes, huh. Jesus is God's son. Do you know that, Daddy? He goes, yeah. And he goes, son, what about Muhammad? He goes, Daddy. I already know Jesus. I know God. Don't confuse me. Wow. And then so Nurchaban said, I later told this story to the Pope. And after the Pope took me around the whole Vatican and walked me out, the Pope turned to me and said, Nurchaban, don't confuse your son. Wow. Yeah, what a guy. And I said, how can I help you, sir? I said, um, he said, pray for me. And then I said, okay. I pray, and I prayed with him. And he said, why are we meeting? I've heard about your family. I saw you on TV. You're rescuing people and you helped the Kurds. 
but why, what, what do you need from me right here? And I said, I need to go to Syria. And he goes, done. One year, 24 hours, anytime you want to cross with anything you want to cross, I trust you guys. I was like, really? That's amazing. Yeah, that's hard. You can't take vehicles across. Right. It's hard to get across. So I said, oh, wow. I said, what else could I do for you besides pray? He said, you know the Nineveh Plains. Christians, almost all the Christians are gone outside the east side of Mosul, even West Mosul, they're gone. Mm-hmm. No one wants to move back because there's so much conflict and different warring factions and the Christians won't go back. When the time comes and is right and we can get the Iraqis to agree, I want you to help us move the Christians, Yazidis, Shabaks, and other minorities back in the Nineveh Plains. I want you to be part of that. I said, that's a disaster area, man. And he goes, yeah, but Dave, you love disasters. <laughs> <laughs> and a very wise man. I said, okay. I said, because I love you, because I love your people, if God opens that door, I'll do it. I, I, I don't know. I don't see how I could do anything but fail because I don't know how to fix I can't fix that problem, but I'll help you. I'm in this thing with you, man, all the way. And so then, then we went to Syria, drove all our vehicles, pizza up in the turret of the Humvee, and our Humvee, rah, driving into Syria, and like people looking like, who are these people? And we went up to a place called Bagus which is right on the Iraqi-Syrian border where the Euphrates River runs into Iraq. And that was the last stronghold of ISIS. ISIS had been defeated in Mosul and Tel Afar, mm-hmm. Ramadi, Fallujah, chased out of, of Iraq. I mean, there's still many in hiding, but sure. they lost all their physical abil- places and vehicles. And They were chased into Syria. They fought for Raqqa, their capital. They lost it, moved to Deir Zor, lost it, and just being beat down the Euphrates River until finally they're at the Iraqi border. And the Iraqi army's on one side, militias on the other side across the rivers Assad's forces supported by Russians and Iranians and Afghans some Mujahideen there fighting ISIS and on this side there's the Kurds and the Arab coalition the Kurdish Democratic I mean the Syria excuse me the Syrian Democratic Forces SDF jammed up and then coalition of US and other NATO powers flying air and then artillery just hammering ISIS Mm. and it was into this little above this little stronghold that our family was there with our teams and it turned out there weren't any NGOs providing immediate relief. There were NGOs back in refugee camps, but there was nothing in the front line. So in six weeks, we treated 4,000 shot people, fed 25,000 people. And that was not with our resources. We don't have that kind of resource. But other churches around the world said, hey, you're there. We're going to help you. Yeah. It was a miracle. So I'm just grateful to them that we were able to run a 24-hour caravan. It's eight hours from Kamishli. It's a liberated town, kind of. It's not fighting anyways near the Iraqi border all the way to the front line. And we had our little circle of steel set up, our armored vehicles in a circle and our ambulances and my family in the middle and piles of food and blankets and diapers, you know, babies, thousands of babies coming out of here and shot people. And we'd run, deliver babies, take care of babies, take care of moms, kids. And then some of the men started coming out and they were put to the side and the U.S. forces would come and do the biometrics on them and all that. And they were shot, wounded or just given up. It's, so it's we, just amazing to me that in this time in the world <laughs> that we I mean, we've got we've got UNICEF. We've got I mean, you name it. We've got so many NGOs and nonprofits and the Red Cross and you. Uh, and here you are. You're just you're just one guy. Take your family. You take a few who help and you're treating so many people in these conflict zones that the whole world's aware of because of the news. That's that's remarkable, Dave. I'm. I, I, I'm just blown. I'm blown away by that. It, it, it's it's almost baffling to hear that 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 this one guy uh, is is doing so much in these crazy conflict zones. Well, 
we did not near enough. And, you know, most conflict zones we're at, we're not the only people at all. Like the Battle of Mosul, there was all kinds of people. Right. Now, we may be the only or few actually in the real fighting, but behind us, there's like Samaritan's Purse, huge, right. taking yeah. care of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, running probably the best field wartime hospital I've ever seen. Were they doing the best job in Iraq? Oh, phenomenal, phenomenal job. Samaritan's Purse did at every level. Yeah. And there were many other people doing a lot more than we did. Um, Syria was different in that in this little battle space, the powers around there made it very hard for anybody to go help. Mm. I just think God got us there in the Kurds. That yeah. was it because we were not wanted there. It's not just that NGOs were too afraid to go or, or it was a bunch of, it was, there were blocks in place that made it very hard to go help mm. ISIS. I'm not sure why, you know, when you're, when you, no one wants to help ISIS be ISIS, but when you're got a two year old shot in the head and we had a few of these, or a five-year-old shot in the belly laying on the ground. They didn't choose to be there. And also, how are you going to change the mom's hearts or even the dad's hearts? This is your opportunity to take care of their kids and give love. You can put them in prison, too. But right now, they're bleeding. Right. You're just going to watch them die. The ones that survive will hate you forever and have good reason to because you you're, you're really no different than them. Yeah. And so I'm just very grateful to, the, to Nurture Ban Barzani and the the regional government of Kurdistan that let us get in, give us all these access, and then to Syrian Democratic Forces, the Kurds and Arabs on that side that made it possible. Those are the two entities that made our work possible. And in the church worldwide that gave the support, prayer and supplies that we could feed these people. It was brutal. I, I, um, I'll share tonight, you know, a couple stories about it. But we were, we were with our enemies every day. These are people that try to kill you. You know, my, mm -hmm. my translator was killed by ISIS. Right. And maybe, did you meet, I think you may yep. have met him before yep. he was died. And we lost lots of friends um, by ISIS. But here we are with an opportunity to help them. Mm -hmm. And I remember one, one day, there was a bunch of men captured. And I called my, and they hadn't eaten or drank anything for days. They're, they're in big trouble. So I Call, I was about 500 yards away in the desert, and I crawled to our little circle of steel on the radio and said, hey, someone bring me food and water for 60 people, 60 men. So Joseph, one of the people you met also, drives up with my daughter, Suzanne, a bunch of food and water, and Suzanne, uncovered, starts handing it out, and the men look at her in shock because they're desperate for food and water, but right. it's a woman, a foreign, uncovered woman is standing and giving them stuff, and they're sitting on the ground. And they put their their hand over their eyes like this and they lift their other hand up because they didn't want to see it, but they needed the food. Right. And I thought there's a verse in the Bible that says when your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. When he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And so doing you put burning coals in their head. Hmm. I thought these burning coals were love. Yeah. Much like God keeps blessing us even when we're wrong. He loves us and gives us things. And that love is the only thing that's going to change our hearts. So many of the ISIS, maybe their hearts will never change. That's their choice. But, some will. And I saw some change while I was there. That's They're amazing. broken by love. Yeah. And that's the most powerful force. It doesn't mean you don't have to fight people sometimes or put people in jail. We all have to do justice. But justice without love is not justice. It's revenge. And it hurts us. Mm -hmm. So to me, when we face our enemies, Lord, protect me because they're, they're my enemies for a reason. It's not a joke. Give me love for them. What's the best thing for them to change? Maybe it's prison. Maybe it's getting shot. But most of the time, it's something else. So, and I, I, there's no formula that I know of except ask the Lord and he'll, he'll guide you in those steps. Yeah. I want to talk about pacifism. I want to talk about just force. 
I'm sure this comes up all the time with you. Uh, is it okay? This is great. Yeah. Um, talk to me a little bit about, you know, it's theologians, uh, pastors, they, they steer clear of this a lot. Um, you know, in, in the documentary that we did, uh, we had Jeremy Courtney in it. We had you in it. Uh, both of you have, you know, Jeremy's outspoken pacifist. Um, and, uh, and, and you're not. And um, talk to me about how you, you justify that. Tell me about your theology concerning violence and how to respond to evil. Well, my theology is this. God knows I don't. So my policy is try to obey Jesus and act in love. So, Lord, what do you want me to do right now? What do I do right now? In the Bible, when God sent the Israelites to fight in Jericho and take it out, part of their procedure was seven times they walked around the city. That never happened again before or since. My point is, God has a new solution for every new thing. Right. I don't want to be locked into one thing that worked yesterday. What's, what's, I don't even know this person right here. Maybe I do. I don't know how to deal with it. But God, you know. And so that, that's my policy. My, my own feeling is, Lord, help me obey and, and be your ambassador. What does that mean right now? You know, I think for the listeners, you have to ask yourselves that too. Is God real in my heart? Can he guide me? Is he big enough to know the answer, what I need to do in this case? And also, the people who are pacifists, if that's how you feel God led you, um, I, I wonder, what do you do then when you see someone getting murdered or raped or beat up? Do you ever call the police? Because if you call the police, you're no longer a pacifist because mm. they're going to come with force. There's a reason the police are going to come, not just because they got a uniform. No one listened to that. They've got weapons, finally, that they will use, and they got things behind them. So if you say you're a pacifist, that may be what God called you to be. Um, and I wouldn't doubt it. I wouldn't dispute it with someone. That's what God's calling is. But I, my personal question, maybe philosophical and practical, is where's the line? Right. Someone else does your dirty work. Someone else protects me. Someone else rescues this person. So that's just a question. I'm not, I don't know the answer to that. That's someone, I, but that's what I want to ask, and I hope people ask themselves for example, if the Iraqi army wasn't in Iraq, nobody could help. If the Americans weren't flying air support, none of us. I had very good friends who, I don't know if they call themselves pacifists or not, but they're Mennonites, full on, with the girls with the doilies on their head and you know the men with the beards, the whole thing. And they, I think, call themselves pacifists, but they couldn't have helped anybody if someone wasn't fighting ISIS because ISIS would just kill them and take their stuff. So... I've never seen a pacifist in the front lines of a battle that an army wasn't there. Right. Like, I haven't seen you just walk up to the, you know, to Raqqa, Syria, and go, hey, I'm going to do this. So you can if God does it, but I feel there's some inconsistencies with that position. But to be fair, I've never met Jeremy, or, and to be fair to him, he might say, no, no, no. Like my dad would say this. My dad's my biggest hero in my life. He fought in the Korean War. He said, Dave, you know, I'd fight if really God put it in my heart, but... I'm more of a personal pacifist, which means my role as God has called me is I'm not going to fight. Now, I know there's armies. That's the native sin in the world. I'll pay my taxes to support them. I'll call the police. So I'm not, my hands are not clean, but my role is not to fight. So maybe someone like Jeremy, that's what, how he would define it. It's just not my job, right. which I respect. And it actually doesn't matter if I respect it or not. He's working for God. Yeah. But I admire that. I certainly admire my father and maybe someone like him. But for me personally, I guess not. there's no but. For me, I feel exactly the same way. My question is, what is my role? 
and it's not always the same. So our role at Freedom Rangers is right where the fighting is, wherever it is. The jungles of Burma looks different than Iraq and Syria, but to be right there and in where people literally get shot. That's right. And most people, when they watch the news, they see the tanks, the planes, the soldiers. But when we spent time with you in Iraq, we see the playgrounds, the kids, the moms. They don't get to choose whether in a, they're in a war zone or not. They're at their home. Right. And, and it that's, came to them. And that's your ministry. And how that pertains to the whole pacifism, just action, uh, you know, whatever you, debate, whatever you want to call it. I think it's, again, it's really easy to make up you know, think you've made up your mind when you're millions of miles away from these conflicts. And what I love about both you and Jeremy is that you've postured yourself in the toughest places. And, you know, even when we, we press Jeremy on it a little bit, he says, yeah, there's a limit to my love. And, you know, he's hoping to push that back even further. And, um, I really respect that about you. I remember Dave, <laughs> we were, we were driving into, uh, Bashika which is just on the outskirts of Mosul. And uh, I was driving in the front seat of the ambulance and I, it was my first time to the front lines. And uh, we were talking, I don't remember what we were talking about, but you, <laughs> you looked over at me for an uncomfortable amount of time. And uh, as you were driving and I was, you know, my senses were heightened. I was waiting for, you know, that, that scary moment in the film to happen. Just Boom. Like, yeah, <laughs> fortunately never did. But you looked me in the eye, said, Joel, be great at hearing the voice of Jesus. And I think you've modeled that, Dave. You, you're, you're good at that. I've been with you in those high-stress situations, and your first response isn't to pick up a weapon. Your first response isn't to respond uh, to the violence with anything but prayer. You go right to it, and your prayers are quick and short, but they're sincere, and I, I really respect that about your spirituality. How do you relate to God when you're in those um those tough places beyond prayer. What is that? What does your spirituality look like in the war well, zones? Well, I don't know if this is helps or not. Um, but I, I have two stories that kind of illustrate how we serve a living God with different answers for different problems. And the first was there was a, and I'm maybe I tell you a story already. When Kurdistan, this is before the Battle of Mosul, it's in the Battle of Bashika, where the Kurds are liberating Bashika, and there's a trench system. And ISIS is fighting all over them in his trench, and they're fighting the, the, the Kurds, and I get up to it, and there's bullets everywhere, blah, 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 right there. I mean, now I'm like 25, 30 yards from the trench, and there's fighting. And you could say, well, why are you there, man? Go back somewhere else. I say, why? So other people can get shot, and then I have to wait how long? You, know, you, can, you get shot at mortal bleeding, you got minutes. You can't be like, hey, get the missionaries who are hiding up here. It'll take them 20 minutes because they got to be safe. Right. If God called you to that, do that. But he never called me. We pray every day. What are you going to do? He called us to be with people yeah. right in their time of need. So I'm up there with them. Bullets are coming in, and I'm, I'm pinned down just like the Kurds are. And I, I thought, Lord, what do I do? And before I listened really for an answer, I, I gave my quick message to God. I don't want to go do this because they're in the trench. The first guy in the trench is dead. These three ISIS guys will kill us or kill me, whoever tries to do this. So it's a stupid one. You're going to die. Number two. I will lose all my missionary church support. People will go, what are you doing, man, fighting? You're a missionary. So I don't want that. Number three, it's not my job. It's these guys' job. And I, when I thought that, I thought, they're thinking the same thing I'm thinking. Anybody who goes in that trench, I go, whose job it is? You're dead. You'll be doing no more jobs. You got wife and kids at home. Why? Let someone else do it. 
And the last argument was, I'll be dead. So I'll be dead. I'll lose my reputation and my funds. Um, it's not my job and I'll be dead. And I told this to God and I said, what do you want me to do? And I clear as a bell, I heard this, do your best. Hmm. And do your best means something different for everybody. But I was a soldier and I know what you should do. And so I assaulted the trench. And as I assaulted the trench, I, a psalm came to my head unbidden. I can't even remember what it was. It was very comforting, like way in the background. Only like a month later, I thought about that and realized that was a psalm. Well, what do you expect when God says, do your best? He didn't just say, okay, good luck, bud. If he says, do your best, he's with you. So one by one, I fought these ISIS guys. One by one, I killed them. It's pretty brutal. The Kurds halfway through it tried to help me. They got shot. And they said, well, enough of that. And, and I should have died. I was, I was two steps away from one of them as we rolled into the trench and faced each other. That's almost like me and you right now. I've seen the video. Yeah. Have you saw the trench video? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's more I like. Watched, I watched you. Not only, not only that, but, but I watched a grenade land about, what, 10 feet from you and explode. And Four yards, yeah. I mean, you're standing there like. Well, like Mr. Bean. Like a statue. Yeah, well. And ju I'm just waiting for you to get shot and you didn't and then and then yeah you rolled into the trench you hear gunfire and then i don't know how you rolled out of the trench how did you do because that was a steep trench wall I, fear it was a supernatural fear and but anyways so that's and and if you you seen the video it's more like mr bean or like you know like it's not it doesn't like mr action guy so when that was over um i remember i prayed for each one of those isis guys that jesus yeah. would forgive them and i and i prayed for you know should i be forgiven and then and, but I, I didn't feel any stab of conscience. I just felt sorry for them. Like, man, you chose this death. You're going to keep killing. Who knows how many women you've raped already and killed? And men, too. You're going to keep killing till this end happens. I, that was very clear. They'll never give up. So I thought, this, someone has to stop this. And for me, it was God said, do your best. Okay. So I prayed for them that they'd be forgiven. Later on that night, I, I called my wife, Karen. And I told her, and she prayed with me. I said, Lord, show us the truth of what happened. Not, not, not our own self-defense mechanisms where they're wrong, we're right. And I woke up the next morning completely at peace and happy. Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, okay. Well, a few days later, a good friend of mine, a um, Norwegian pastor, said, Dave, God told me to tell you this. He gave you grace mm -hmm. to kill those ISIS and stop them from their destruction. And he forgives you. Don't operate outside his grace. And I thought, if God told you to do something, why does he need to forgive you? Because you're still a sinner. I don't know the answer to this, but my thought is you're still a sinner. He's the only righteous judge. And so you need forgiveness too. All your motives are not pure. Certainly mine aren't. And so you're not, you're not better than these guys. You just need to stop this for their own sake and for everybody's sake. So that's one story. Just about two weeks later, we were in the liberation of Faisalia. No, I'm sorry. It was two weeks earlier. Two weeks earlier, the liberation of Faisalia American airstrike had killed eight family members accidentally. And the people were mad. And there was about 200 men gathered around. They were furious. And they were crying and wailing. And there was the kids from um, less than one years old all the way up to the mom and dad in their 40s, all dead. And the family, other family members who survived were all gathered around beside themselves in grief and anger and frustration. And we were there. We just liberated this town. But the liberation meant nothing to them. They just lost their whole family. So I prayed, what should I do? And I first thought, I'm not going to go to that crowd, that mob. One, it'd be like disrespectful. I'd be like rubbing salt in their wound. Second, as an American. Second, um, they're just trying to kill me. And third, what I got to say? I didn't do the bombing. 
And I stopped and prayed. I said, Jesus, what should I do? So just like the scene before where I was in the fight, this one was, Jesus, what should I do? And it became very clear, you're here to be my ambassador. Hmm. Not anybody's but mine. So I ditched all my gear, but I kept the pistol hidden under my shirt because I don't know what's going to happen. And I walk into this group with my translators going, this is a bad idea. This is a bad idea. Are you crazy? They're going to kill us. I said, that's okay. They won't kill you, man. They can kill me. And I walked up to him and I said, I'm so sorry for what happened. I'm an American. It's also my fault. It's not just the government and us. We're all in this together. I'm sure that was an accident. I bet that pilot's got kids. And if he knew, because it was an ISIS position 100 yards from the, this house. One bomb hit the ISIS position and took him out. One bomb hit the house. So it was, it was definitely an accident. And I'm sorry. And I apologize. And we'll try to make it right. But please forgive me and forgive us. And when I said this, I didn't know what else to say. They just looked at me stony-faced. And I just finally said, I want to pray. And I got on my knees. And I prayed. And when I got done praying, I said, there's one more thing. I can give you one more thing. And that's my life. I've got a wife and three kids. I won't have time to call them. I have a pistol in the back of my pants under my shirt. You can take it out and shoot me with my own gun. I will not fight you. I will never fight you. It's only one life compared to eight. But that's all I can give you. And the older brother looked down at me and lifted me up. Big dude, man, lifted me up and started crying and he hugged me. He said, we will never kill you. You're our family now. Wow. That was love. And so the point of those, and we became close. We put a playground in that, in that place in honor of those kids who were killed. We became close to that family, that community. But the point of these two stories is they're two different, I feel, um, responses based on what God, I feel, asked me to do. I can't prove either one was right, but they felt right and they still feel right as best as a, a weak, you know, um, person does. And I, I have weaknesses of pride, anger, love of action, violence. I have a ton of weaknesses, but I think I take those. I try to take those and lift them up and say, God, take all these. I don't want to be led by them. Well, how do you want to lead me today? And so sometimes like in the trench fight and a few other times it's fight these guys, not because you're better than them. Cause it's got to stop. And other times it's no, Put your hands up and get ready to give your life away. So I don't know what will happen. And I know this. When I don't listen to God, I usually make a mistake. If I stop and listen, he's got a way. Washington Post uh, just came out with an article that um, before ISIS, 15,000 Christians in Mosul. Today, 40. You fought in Mosul. You fought surrounding Mosul for nearly a year you've lost friends you've lost more than 40 people just that you are friends yeah your friends is that hard to hear yeah I was in an area we were pushing in a place called Howie Kanisa which means place of the church Kanisa means church it's the most beautiful part I think of Mosul because it's mostly green it's around the northwest side of Mosul the green strip along the Euphrates and the Christians had cultivated it it was little farms and big yards and beautiful houses and churches all along the river. It was the best part of Mosul. Gone. There's, as soon as ISIS came, those Christians are dead or run away. And then we came in a place called Tammuz 17, um, where we faced ISIS many times. I was shot there. And we finally liberated Hawi Kanisa, but there's no Christians left. There were some caretakers who used to work for the Christians, very f sweet farm family we're still friends with today. We stay at their farm all the time every time we go there. But it's gone. And it's hard to come back, not only because of the rubble and the ruin and the memories and dead bodies, but it's hard to come back because there's forces there that don't want you to come back. 
uh, there's un underground ISIS sleeper cells that are still active that'll try to kill Christians. There's militias that are against Christians coming back. And so very few have come back. They feel like they're just going to die there. It's not, and no one's going to protect them. So, and that, that's also the same thing in Syria. In eastern Syria, from the Euphrates River back to the Iraqi border, in that's, that little area of Syria, there was 200,000 Christians before ISIS. There are 60,000 left, and they're not coming back. Almost every, well, every church I saw that ISIS came to destroyed. Um, it's kind of an aside. We're trying to help rebuild the, the, the church in Raqqa right now, in the middle of that project. But in Raqqa, there were 5,000 Christians. And after ISIS, there was nothing. Now there's 19 have come back. That's it. And I've heard 23 more families might come back. So that's very small. How many but of... Can I, can I add one thing? Yeah. So I was in the middle of this wrecked church praying. Yeah. This was back in May this year. And I said, we should pray for the church. And I closed my eyes and I prayed. And I prayed this, among many things. And God, please help us rebuild the church and bring people back. And right away I thought, that's a dumb prayer. I don't want to come back here. What if a, some rich churches give us a lot of money to rebuild the church? What a bad stewardship to build this thing that no one's going to come to. So that's a dumb prayer. I don't want to ask for money. I don't want anybody to give us money for something that shouldn't be here. So I stopped and I said, Lord, how do you want me to pray? And clear as a bell, I heard God say, pray what you just prayed, but this time with faith. <sighs> oh, okay, Lord, please help us rebuild. Somebody rebuild the church and may the Christians come back. I walked out of that building. And up come two strangers, one guy with an AK, one guy not. And he goes, what have you been doing here? I said, praying for your church. He says, we've been praying to rebuild this church. I'm a Christian. See, the cross tattooed on my forearm. I was shot four times by ISIS. All the Christians fled. I'm one of 19 who's come back, and we're praying to rebuild this church. Wow. So right, and then I told a friend about it, and he gave us some funds to start rebuilding the church. But the opposition is this. There's a spiritual opposition we can't see with our eyes. There's Satan, and they can feel it there. So that needs to be prayed against. That's the real battle. In fact, you know, one of my little life lessons is when someone's really mad at you, it's your enemy. Really, they're not your main enemy. It's Satan behind them. Mm. Don't get too mad at them. Yeah. But anyways, it's Satan and his demons. Second enemy is ISIS all over the place still. And they're going to want to blow the church up. Third is other tribes that don't want a Christian church rebuilt there. And then, so you have many obstacles, but we're right in the start of it right now. What are the needs? Uh, how do you, how... Can listeners uh, support this effort? Well, we need prayer that we actually do follow Jesus. You know, we're talking about pacifism and war. And to me, it came down to what does God ask you to do? Yeah. So pray for us that we actually listen and hear his voice, not another voice. And we act on it in love, whatever it is. That's number one is prayer. Um, if people feel they want to get involved with their governments, like the U.S. government, hey, we need to help these people more, we need to help the Syrians more, the Iraqis more, the the ethnics of Burma more. That's very important. That'd be a big help. Um, volunteering. If you've got any kind of skill or interest in any area, God, God's kingdom is big. There's many ways you can help as a short-term volunteer or long-term volunteer. Funds. It costs money to rebuild churches, for example, or buy medicine to treat people. That's another way to help. I think those are the main ways I can think of. What would your advice be for... Um this generation that's coming up uh, to get involved in places where they see so much injustice, they hear about ISIS, they hear about what you're doing. How, how can, how can this generation, specifically towards high school, college, post-college age kids, how can they get involved and, and participate in seeing the kingdom advance? 
I think the first thing is prayer and ask Jesus to help you with a personal inventory of your life. What am I doing? Yeah. Who am I serving? Yeah. What am I doing that's wrong? Clean our because how are we gonna clean up the street if our old house is a dump? Yeah. So first thing is, and that's a daily thing for me to do, not multiple times a day. Forgive me for that thought. Forgive me for that word I said. Um, help me be useful in your kingdom. And I found when I pray that I'm not less free, I'm more free. God's never hurt my fun time, and that's the very first thing. And then. Within that, God, what do you want me to do? And it may be right here in California. I need to take care of this you, this you. I'm going to be part of this struggle, this struggle. It may be around the world, but God's going to guide you in that. He's going to put those things together. You, we align ourselves with God, ask him to clean us out every day or whatever it takes, and then, he, then he'll guide you. It'll come to you. I like that. Dave, uh, how, are, uh, how are your kids doing? I know uh, Peter was, he's your, he's your youngest. He was the youngest kid to, cl- to ever climb Mount Rainier, 14,000 feet up in Washington. Yeah, he was six when he climbed that. Six years old. Six when he climbed the Grand Teton. He youngest for that, too. <laughs> Five when he did the T-Wanot. The girls are in the road. Four and the brothers. Three when he, I mean, yeah. three years old, he's climbing mountains unassisted by me. That's Usually unreal. with a big sword, a real sword, because he liked to carry it. Like, holy cow, he's dragging up the mountain. <laughs> but um, this time in the States... It's a blessing. And again, it's the wonderful people here in America that lend us good horses. When you ride barrels in Cody or Jackson, Wyoming, in Rodeo or in Washington State with Rodeo, they can't just be any horse. They got to be fast. They got to know the pattern. You're competing against professionals. And so just awesome, generous, salt-of-the-earth people give our kids horses to use. And they did well. And they won some events in Wyoming and Pete rides bulls and steers. He's old enough. He's 13 now. We ride some bulls, but which is eject him like a oh my ping pong gosh. ball, man. And girls ride race barrels. So that's fun. This morning we got the surf. We get the climb different places. So you come home. Is this a uh, this furlough? Is this you do this every year? You come back and mm-hmm. um, how how long are you usually in the states for? Usually depends. About two months. Two months. Yeah. And you're then we, s- you're we, speaking at churches, speaking at churches and meeting friends. Yeah. And then playing rodeo, ride horses, <laughs> climb, surf, skydive, whatever we can hunt in Alaska, whatever we can do, you know, yeah. we do. That's awesome. And that's all a gift from other people. You know, the very truck we drive, someone, a friend of ours in the East Coast just gave it to us. Wow. So it's, I love God's gifts. You don't get to choose them, but they're pretty awesome. What do you? What are your needs uh, moving forward for this next year? What do you feel God's calling you to? Where is He calling you? And can I go with you? <laughs> Please come, come to Burma, man. You think it's like Hobbit Land? It's like Avatar and Hobbit Land put together. There, there's, for example, in our camp, you know, there's no locks on the doors because there's no doors. Yeah. Don't steal. Yeah. It's sweet, and it's beautiful jungle. So, we're gonna get ready to go back in about nine days. We fly back to Thailand. And then we go back into Burma, Iraq, and Syria based on the needs. We have now 90 teams in Burma. Wow. And we've got a team in Syria and a team in Iraq. And I just pray. I really don't know the answer to your question because I don't know where we're going to go next. It's where are we most needed. And we learn that by discussing together with our family, our staff, and all the leaders of these different teams. We all get together and decide where should we be? Where where should you be, Dave? How, How are you most useful to us? And prayer. So 
I really don't know what the next few months will hold. On on the side, I'm working on a book right now about mostly about the Battle of Mosul. So it's not the comp comprehensive Freedom Ranger book, but it'll, it'll start in Mosul. It'll give you a couple chapters into how we got to Mosul, some of the stories I told, and who are the people in Burma, who are the Free Burma Rangers, because you're going to see them again. And it's really going to focus on about nine months of the Battle of Mosul. And the reason is because it felt to me like the things we learned from God and each other all came to a point, a very sharp and clear point in Mosul. And we learned about love and about forgiveness and about the difference between revenge and justice, which is love. And about standing against evil and about evil in our own hearts and about wonderful people from other religions and, and cultures that are now our family. So and the power of Jesus to change lives and over the power of I mean, runs trying to run through an open area that ISIS had covered. And I, I was so scared. I just prayed. What do I pray? And I felt Jesus say, use my name. I said, OK, Satan and demons, you can't stop us. ISIS, you can't see us. If any of you don't like this prayer, talk to Jesus because I'm running behind him. Well, he's real. And so you can't control him, but he's real. And we learned and experienced many things that we just want to report on and say, this is what we did. So I'm trying to finish that this year. Good. And so I'm working on it right now, actually. Awesome. And I'll send you a rough edit. I, I would love to do that and to tell me, hey, Dave, what the heck? This is horrible. But um, <laughs> Well, not me. We'll put the editors on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I can't spell my name without okay. grammatically screwing So we'll, we'll try to do that this year. The uh, documentary is coming out early next year. That's um, Chris, Chris Sinclair's project. Right. D uh, Chris Brent, a guy named Dave um, of Daydox. Yeah, Daydox Films. Right. Uh, they spent a couple of years with you filming yeah. this. Yeah. It's pretty extensive. And then we gave our Iraq footage that we yeah, shot beautiful with footage. you. And uh, I, I can't wait for this documentary to come out because I think it, it will really give people insight into your story. Because, again, it's so fragmented. We, we, we hear little bits and pieces about you know, where Dave Eubanks and Karen and the whole the team is. But to to see the the whole story kind of unfold visually will be very important. And uh, Dave, I'm so thankful for, for you. I'm so thankful for your friendship. Uh, I'm so thankful for uh, the example you are um, to the church uh, to not be fearful of the front lines, not be fearful of the spiritually dark things. Um, you live out your faith um and uh, i'm really 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 thankful for you so thank you for being on the podcast today thank you and god bless you and nations in jesus name amen amen thanks dave thanks